Hello everyone. My guest today is Adam Nathaniel Furman. Adam is a British artist and designer of Argentine and Japanese heritage based in London. Trained in architecture, Adam's atelier works in spatial design and art of all scales, from video and prints to large public artworks, architecturally integrated ornament, as well as products, furniture, interiors, publishing and academia. Now on with the podcast. All right. Well, Adam, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Um, I wanted to start, if you don't mind, because you are one of the few practicing uh, architectural practitioners who doesn't seem to be of the minimalist, modernist guys uh, in the sort of current architectural sphere. And I've just been looking at your uh, recent pot, which I think is absolutely stunning. Uh, what's it called? My the, recent uh, what? Pot. The Baalbek. Baalbek pot on oh, your the website. Vase. The vase, sorry, yes. Pot, pot <laughs> vase, you know, whatever it is. It's a pot. <laughs> whatever it is, it's beautiful. So that's the point. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, you know, I found that within your within my work that you tend to come back to the same color palettes over and over again. Like for me, it's sort of black, green, and gold. And for you, yeah. looking at your work, it seems to be a sort of light pink, light blue, and yellow. So I wanted to, if you could start by talking about the vase generally why it is that you have an appeal to pottery and also tie into that why the particular color palette that seems to sort of permeate your work is the one that appeals to you um oh several questions in there so th i guess the first one i'll take is ceramics because i i mean i as you've noticed i'm uh mildly obsessive <laughs> about, about the material um and it, it's i i i i mean i write poems about ceramics. I love them so much. There's a sort of SoundCloud uh, poem uh, called Babel, which is about a city of native ceramics. Um, they, I kind of came across them a little bit by mistake. I think I, I'm sort of a, an, in, an, one might call me an inveterate hoarder, or I was in the past. So already as a sort of teenager, I would be drag, dragging back sort of like bits of wood that I find in the street and sort of my room would just be full of crap that I'd just found around London. Um, and so there's a kind of an, an accumulative tendency that I have to surround myself with things that I can change and edit and think about and put into groups. Um, and I was, uh, I think in early university <clears throat> period, I was sort of wanting to maybe direct this in a slightly more um, productive way and less random manner. Um, and I was looking for things that I could learn about and collect. Uh, that were uh, interesting, um, had a really, you know, have a sort of really nice culture around them, lots of stuff to study, but were affordable. Um, and I just ended up coming across ceramics in the sort of antiques uh, markets that I was, uh, that I mean, to be honest, I was brought up frequenting. Um, and, you know, they're quite amazing from that perspective in that if you're, you know, if you look carefully, you can find really incredible, very, very, very old ceramics that you can buy for, I mean, frankly, virtually nothing if they're broken. So um, I, because people sort of really value the, the sort of ones in good condition. And I, so I ended up sort of collecting broken, uh, but really high quality and interesting ceramics. And, and then I learned very quickly that behind each of these um, kind of fragments that I would find, there was a whole period a, a geographic location, an artistic, normally movement or context that I could study, and they became these sort of doorways into whole worlds. And that kind of snowballed very quickly. I learned about the material technologies, how it's kind of, you know, the most ancient technology effectively of sort of just taking earth and then putting it in the sun initially. Um, and that sort of making, I mean, there's a reason that in, you know, um, in, in Jewish law, sort of Adam is, you know, made from uh the earth uh with the breath you know the, the fire of god's breath um because there's something kind of magical about taking just stuff and then having it through basic element the element of fire turn into something which is uh you know one of the basic constructs of our our society and so it goes way back you know if you you look at the gates of ishtar in babylon you know, five thousand years ago there are these incredible ceramic gateways and it goes way further back than that and then every period i would find incredible with every period that i was interested in, i would find incredible uh relics 
that were in ceramic that would kind of be little synecdoches. So they would sort of embody uh, through a kind of little souvenir this entire period and all of its complexity. Um, I mean, I ended up sort of, you know, like writing my final thesis on um, on the sort of invention of value separate to um, sort of mineral and metal value in the in the early 18th century in Europe through uh, ceramics uh, when combined with artistic value um, and the sort of di diplomatic trade of, of ceramics back in that period. And, it, you know, I mean, that was 18th century Europe, but then pretty much every period that I was interested in artistically, ceramics are a sort of amazing thing that was always occurring within them. They're sort of like under the radar, but always there, you know, in the background. Um, and a little bit like, uh, you know, queer and female histories, you know, they were always there doing most of the work. <laughs> They just didn't happen to be there. Ceramics are kind of the artistic equivalent of that. Um, and so, you know, by the time I, I reached my fifth year in university, I was I was actually a star antique dealer on, on eBay as well. So I was dealing a lot of antiques. I was, I think I was the youngest member of the French Porcelain Society and I was sort of hanging out at Bonhams. Um, and, you know, my final project, my attention was, I went in with my interview to the tutors saying, I want to do, they, they, the brief was to do a church that year. And I said, I want to do, I want to do a porcelain church. <laughs> that was my pitch to be allowed into the, into their studio. And that passion's continued really since then. And um, I've kind of layered on meanings, personal meanings as well, um, onto the material as well, the more experience I've had with it. Um, and my great dream is, which is, I mean, you know, and the first sort of large scale project is now happening, but my dream is really to do buildings which are um, dressed <laughs> in ceramics. Um, and, and that's uh, something, that's a journey that I'm sort of, I feel like I'm just starting now, even though I've been prepping for 20 years. <laughs> Yeah, well, there's a there's an interesting. Sorry, comparison. there was another question there, but ceramics is quite a big thing for me. So. Well, it was on color. The colors, we'll, the colors, we'll go into the color in a thing. second. Yeah, yeah, the actual on the ceramics, like there's always there's an interesting comparison because it's sort of a ceramic is a fired thing, like it's a thing that's that you can't. It's like a cake; you can't unbake a cake, you can't unfire yes. a pot, and that's sort of it's kind of similar to um, masonry architecture in that way. Like you can't uncure concrete, you can't unconstruct brick, really um and well, i guess that, ceramic yeah yeah i mean that's why i was keeping reused bricks but it's sort of like yeah. there's, there's like a um like if, if you had a fresco on a church or something it's not like you can pick it up and move it somewhere else like it's it's there's a a one one-off element to that like yes. a, an, a something that makes it special and unchangeable and that's kind of true of pots as well and ceramics that you can't you can't change you can't reuse it you can't sort of reformat it which is quite, which sort of fits into the building side quite well, I guess. And I suppose I was going to say there's something very Grayson Perry about your uh, your ceramics, and it makes seeing your sort of work with tiles makes me think of the um, House for Essex and that sort of intricate, uh, almost that Victorian style tile work, uh, and the house as that kind of or, or whatever building it is, as having that interesting sort of permanent skin that's. Yeah, as I say, unchangeable in that sense. Although I suppose you could remove it, and if it's clad. But do you think how do how does that interact with you for you the way you have you say you say you're interested in um in the sort of ceramic side of things on buildings? Do you see the ceramic as as separate from the structure of the building as like a skin, like you said, dressed? Do you yeah. see them as separate things, or do you see in the sort of more Puginian sense that the the ornament and the dressing should be part of the structure well with pugin i mean i mean there was a lot of rhetoric like with corbusier but you know fundamentally he covered everything with with encaustic tiles and and majolica so yeah quite <laughs> so he did the same thing <laughs> uh, so i mean no it can't be it can't be structural i mean i mean it can be you have brick right so you have different types you have brick, and then obviously, if, if you if you really are a believer in this rhetoric that the structure has to be the uh, the the uh, the ornament, if you or the structure has to be everything, and then you don't use the word ornament, then you know you you sort of you know I don't know lay the lay the bricks differently. But um, normally, the the kind of ornamental ceramics would be laid on top. They're, they're not they're not structural um, because it's about the surface, and normally the the sort of space it's about creating surface and the space behind it can't be solid it needs to be attached to something so i definitely think about it as as dressing uh, but a little bit i mean sort of one of my 
one of my yeah i mean i have a lot of i have a lot of lots of great architect heroes i mean yeah just a history of brilliant buildings built over the past few hundred years but one of the greats was louis sullivan um who who came up with the term form follows function but i think I, i've never actually read, read the text or where it came from but i have a feeling that it's much more sophisticated context or that it was embedded in rather than the sort of reductive way that it's been uh used since but um his his terracotta it was specifically terracotta in the united states that, that was being used at the time his terracotta cladding um is highly ornamental and he didn't he didn't ever mean that um the the decoration right the form needed to be the function but that it it should not um totally belie it that it shouldn't present something that is in opposition to the structure so if you look at his i can't remember the name but there's this sort of I don't, it's sort of a high-rise building in, in Buffalo, which is sort of like the iconic sort of office building that he did um, in this, that sort of embodies this, this, um, uh, this concept. Um, it's, it's highly ornamental. I guess you can call it sort of Art Nouveau type vegetal decoration, but it, it's sort of celebrating the steel, which is behind. So you can, it's just a little bit like the, you know, the way he describes sort of the flesh on the, the bone, the muscle on the body, the muscle on the bone, the flesh, uh, the, the skin on the muscle. And you can kind of, you can kind of understand the way the forces are moving through the building, but they don't, they're not moving through the terracotta cladding itself. It, it's sort of part of the layering as clothes would be on a person that is not as simple as clothes that are x-ray scans of the body below. It's a little bit more sophisticated and that's adding in art culture beauty uh, uh, natural references historical allusions uh, which nonetheless don't completely hide what is going on behind yeah. um, and that's i guess that's sort of more the school that i conform to um the yeah i mean i, I if you've ever seen any of sullivan's buildings in real life they are yeah they are absolutely stunning. something else <laughs> you know? yeah well no i think you're right i think that that practically it's never really apart from perhaps in some very very specific circumstances it's almost never that the ornament can be actually functional in a sort of structural or practical structural sense way. but i, have yeah, I mean thought... i did it like my fifth year my fifth year project i was uh i was interested in doing that and like i designed uh, uh a vault um a structural vault using travertine um for my fifth year project and, and actually built um two voussoirs uh, that sort of joined together with that and that was ornamental and structural and the kind of ornament was was designed according to a gradient uh within the kind of curve of the vaulting uh as to where uh, more support towards the center of the arching was required and it would and the depth of the ornament changed according to that so there was a kind of structural um element Mm. to the ornamentation which was into and also the coloring as well because the different colors of travertine so that that was integral to the kind of ornamental aspects of what was fundamentally the actual structure of the building as well um but that was a university project and as you know people do you know algae farms on mars you know it's not they're not massively realistic i mean my, my dream is you know i would love to do something like that one day um but unless you're peter zumtor um you know it's very very unusual to get yeah missions where you can well, work on that level yeah well while we're on the uh, mostly the, i get people who want to put vinyl on things really. <laughs> let alone commit to building something out of you know a full material uh, yeah. fully structurally explored well i have always thought no one ever mentions almost never mentions the function of ornament as in the psychological function that somehow that having and something on the ex outside of a building that has vis is visually expressive has a a psychological role in the actual function of the building and that the psychological role of the building is part of the function of the building not just mm. holding it up or housing whatever the program is and i think that's that's for me the biggest thing that's missed about why ornament is important is that it has that psychological effect in the way people perceive the building yeah i mean ornament never never went away it's just you know within modernism um it became an ornament that was only legible to people who had been inculcated in the you know in the education of high architecture or uh or sort of i guess the abstract art of the period who would appreciate that kind of kind of thing i mean you know the a john porson scheme where you have uh the glazing just you know sliding into uh a hidden detail where there's you know there's no architrave or frame 
that's that the app that absence there is is an ornament but it's an ornament which is a sort of highly highly aestheticized one that can only be understood through education for an elite mm. not normally i mean it's a sort of a code a, a code of belonging that you need to understand that you need to sort of belong to a group uh, to understand why that's beautiful and then and then you find it beautiful so i don't think ornament ever went away i think it sort of changed its form and became maybe uh, more narrow in terms of the people who could understand it um you know because i think it's a natural it's not i think i mean it, it is a natural biological human uh urge and need to externalize our identities our social values and our culture um in a visual manner in space and and i mean that happens that happens on a human level initially with clothing that's the kind of first thing that you do it's a, you know we would all just be wearing neutral canvas sacks if if there was uh, no cultural element to that but everything about it is beyond the function of just the clothing um and you move beyond that and there's tattoos and jewelry and then interior design these are all inherently things that we do you know even the moment you move into a space the first thing that you want to do is to mark or externalize yourself somehow in that space so you feel situated and humans do the same things at the scale of the city i mean hannah aren you know talked about um the athenian uh, agora and the kind of urbanism uh, of um of sort of high classical athens as being the uh spatial urbanistic embodiment of narratives history and values of that society marked in architecture marked in marble and th and that's that's what our cities are there are values externalized an ornament is simply one rung in that ladder that runs all the way from you know national planning right down to um your jewelry or the clothes that you wear it is simply the way that our values and our culture is externalized and expressed at the scale of the building um and it's always there you know I, I, minimalism is a form of ornamentation so uh, but but what i think it is what i think has happened is that on the one hand there is um since the kind of 1980s there's a sort of orthodoxy or a dogma of context which is uh, a kind of form of architectural xenophobia where there's a doctrine of the the repetition uh or um sort of extension of what is existing that that nothing new must be added it always must be based upon what is surrounding it existing in the context and what that does is it's a little bit like saying no people can come into this country unless they're the people who have always been here uh, because all of the cultures of the changing society that we live in um changing british culture but also changing new immigrant culture that comes in none of that is expressed in any of in any material way in the kind of architectural context in, in which we we live and on the other hand you have uh, new radical innovative buildings that sort of you know tend to be allowed through for that reason because they're innovative and they come from a highly narrow uh sort of academic high architecture um context of our universities where a very small crowd of people define um what can be expressed and what is considered good architecture at any given point in time i mean it changes sort of every 10 years or so and they are defining a particular aesthetic that is just as narrow as the one or actually even more narrow because the one that's repeating the local context at least changes from place to place in the country and across the country they're sort of extending a dogma of a kind of clique of people in universities and that's not diverse and that's not interesting and that's a basically another form of ornament that's just representing a very very small group of people so my kind of i guess i i refer people to victorian london not only london i mean victorian victorian urbanism i guess which was a kind of mad free for all um and everything was ornamented and yes there were fashions and things came and went but it's full of eccentric and unusual buildings that are ornamented in ways that you know you can't even conceive of today even though we have the technologies to do them um and that was possible because planning law didn't really exist in the same way um and schools of architecture didn't exist in the same way at all there's a lot more space for diversity and change and japan is 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 similar there's a lot of small scale and also the scale of construction was smaller so there's more diversity possible and japan still has quite a lot of diversity with smaller scale construction smaller developers people able to express themselves through their 
their building. So it's a bit, there's also a big, big roundabout sort of uh, explanation of, of my relationship to ornament at the scale of architecture. Yeah, well, it's, I find it interesting that you put the sort of the sort of clique of star architecture or the, the, I suppose, the international style as sort of this accepted high academic um, sort of star club of, of people who only really understand it. And it's not really what most people on the ground want. And, and interestingly, it's not expressive of individual people's identities and cultures and sort of where they've come from. And I've always thought there's something quite almost colonial about the international style when it's sort of exported around from wherever it started sort of say the Bauhaus um, around the world and sort of imposed on all the different cultures around the world no matter what their histories and their sort of their values and there's and it's sort of said you accept this this is the best sort of thing this is the bet the the highest form of architecture kind of thing and there's there's a lack of respect of as you say the diversity that's possible of architecture uh, in different places and by different peoples. Yeah, I mean, I, we've moved way beyond the international style. I mean, that sort of died in the 60, early 60s. But um, I think the style of that type of hegemony changes regularly, but it's always still commanded by a sort of clique of people on the east, you know, east and west coast of America, um, you know, London, Switzerland, uh, Belgium. I don't know, the, the sort of centres of architectural uh, dogma creation um, and it, it has remained a sort of very top-down thing um, but I'm also you know the, the, the counter the counterbalance to that was supposedly the celebration of vernacular um, you know with lots of really relevant and good and interesting discussions but it's also become something of a counterbalance oppositional dogma which which I see as I mean it's also it's just as damaging and just as, as narrow um, so we do seem to have these sort of two <laughs> opposite opposite uh states one is sort of overly celebrating the local and the other is sort of uh the the radical and the um and the progressive as defined by a really non-radical and non-progressive uh small group of people in a few universities yeah they are almost two competing philosophies aren't they because you want to you want to respect the sort of geographical and cultural diversity of architecture but also as you say, there's a dogma of everything must match what is already there in a lot of cases. And I suppose that's especially true around sort of conservation law and that kind of thing. Um, but my, my answer to this has always been that you should respect what's there, but not copy it. Whereas I think there's a lot of still dogma of um, just plain copying, which is obviously a bit of a blunt tool and, and not least because people are terrible at copying high quality traditional architecture now. Um, exemplified but it's by very expensive to do it well yes yeah well i um i discussed this point with nikos salangaros recently and he pointed out that the that the way that ornament is not exp not more expensive is that you basically reduce the um the margins for error you have wider gaps between things you have uh so you can have quicker processes that manufacture the building or construct the building far faster but then the fact you have ornament allows you to cover those tolerances up and that overall that then results in it being cheaper than if you're trying to do this sort of high modernist absolutely accurate shadow gapping or whatever it is that's to a sort of millimeter tolerance in order to make it work and yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd love to i see mean ornament more. was always very good for hiding uh wonky craftsmanship and uh, and low tolerances I, it's, it's great you know? yeah well um, it's, it's i found building things myself that that's very much true that it's a lot quicker to build something roughly and then cover it up with some kind of trim or ornament than it is to try yeah, to build exactly. something exactly on point from the beginning yeah. um but yeah but going well um we'll go back to style in a minute but i want to jump into color first because uh, I think style is quite a big, big uh, subject. Your, as I said earlier, your color palette seems to be like a light pink, light blue, yellow. What, what appeals to you about your particular palette that you have and the and that sort of set of colors? And why do you use the colors in the way you do more generally? Um, I mean, so in terms of color palettes, like I, depends where you look in my work. Like I, I like using lots and lots and lots of colors. 
and I like, you know, I tend to like quite bright and bold colors, but I'm not, I, I, I'm not someone, I guess, who has a fixed palette that's always the same. I, given the opportunity, I'll use wildly different uh, palettes. I do, I do tend to be drawn to what the, the, the sort of trio that you, you just mentioned, uh, but you left out white. So mm. I, I tend to be drawn to white, blue, pink and yellow. Um, and that's, I mean, that yes, there's an intuitive aspect, but there's a certain, there's a certain levity to them, which, um, and, and also the fact that they tend to work well across the materials that I use. So they tend to be good both in powder coating, painting, ceramic glaze, um, that they're, that, that I know, I know color references that work well and materials that work well across all of this. Um, but in terms of specific meaning, so um, pink, white, and um, blue is the trans flag. Um, and mm. that's, that's a happy coincidence. So it wasn't, I mean, the, the things are always sort of happy coincidences and they sort of get meanings laid on them. So it's sort of using that palette quite a lot, but it's also the, the trans flag, which is, uh, you know, um, uh, important, I think these days that uh, <clears throat> they're they're definitely you know as part part of the kind of queer coalition that's they're definitely ones that need uh, a huge amount of uh, solidarity and support um, and I also think it's a beautiful color combination um, and then yellow and pink are particularly meaningful to me um, because um, yellow uh, and this is why I tend to there's a kind of there's a few sort of things here so the yellow the yellow star of David was the the mark that the Nazis put on the Jews for Judah uh, in the late 1930s um, and uh, that that's yeah I mean that's understandably something you know I have connections yeah. to that in my heritage um, and that, that that idea of standing up proudly from oppression means a lot um and the pink triangle um was what the nazis used uh to mark um homosexuals so oh, really? so that actually yes yeah so the pink the pink triangle uh, yeah the, so the pink triangle was what nazis used to mark um homosexuals and the, the yellow star of david was what they used to mark uh jews and so obviously these are two things that are integral important to my identity so they, it's just become a sort of in my head it's sort of like a very powerful you know <laughs> effort, sense of affirmation to to use those and 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 uh i very often uh i use i use kind of sun star motifs so cent centralized uh rotated motifs basically always like <laughs> in my work and that comes from the fact that um the star of david uh, the flag of Japan and the flag of Argentina are are all uh, there's two sun motifs and one star motif, <laughs> <laughs> which, we should, so, which but, we should say for people is the basis of your heritage. Sorry, yes, sorry, yes. So, <laughs> for people yeah, who so don't my, know, yes, yeah, so it's Japan, Argentina, and then Judaism, and so um, th those are sort of in my head. There's a sort of nice combination of those things. But one other layer <laughs> to it, color is. Uh, the pink and the blue is male and female. So the kind of, you know, gender reveal baby parties that they have in America kind of thing. And, you know, the, the, the sort of light blue color that you always put on boys and on girls. And and uh, whenever I, I use those colors, I do like to mix them always in, in a way that um, it doesn't conform to just sort of sticking to one gender. So it's called gender fucking. So it's, it's always <laughs> like if I have a, if, if I have a motif, that might might in, imply in some way male i'll mix it with pink and and vice versa so th those colors are important for me to to blend together uh always so there's never there's never uh, just one of them um so yeah th that's the kind of little little bag <laughs> of reasons why i'm very comfortable coming back to that collection of colors um although i do use plenty of others given the opportunity um it is very often with color a matter of quality and budget time and materials um and it's so a lot depends on that um and the, the more time the, the more possibilities for development uh the more colors i will i will use so i'm currently pushing as a big big project in central london at the moment and you know they, they kind of forced me to go down from 150 colors to 31 <laughs> 
Well, a lot of a lot of your work seems to play on the multicolored aspect and the polychromatic aspect uh, existing in contrast to the the rest of what's around it. Do you think it would hypothetically work? Say you were to design an entire urban context, would you tone yourself down almost to make it more less visually busy? Or would you sort of maintain that that level of, of polychromism uh, across a, a wider palette? Um, I think you'd just say polychromy. But... <laughs> is, it, is it polychromy? Oh, just, <laughs> yeah, I'm... I think so. No, it's fine. <laughs> no, please. Um, I don't know. If I'm wrong. I, know. I was just thinking because I was like, how actually are we meant to use it? So we should, we, I guess we can invent a way of the, the terminology. Um, so I, I think there's a. People that. Clients have come to me, so I've had people coming. Uh, uh, yeah, this is a, this is a kind of conundrum of um, a designer who does things which which are not, you know, beautifully crafted wooden installations. You know that 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 can easily become, you know, they can imagine that they commission you to do a gallery or something. It's some somebody like myself who who does work which people cannot imagine. Fitting in, fitting in within normal British architecture tend to get kind of the pride float type commissions. So the kind of pink wash, like, oh, well, we'll we have a small budget from our marketing team and you're kind of fun and diverse. We'll, we'll use you to do something with our 3000 pounds or whatever. Um, and and there, is a, there is an impetus there embedded within the brief um, to create something which is loud, something which is in opposition to what is around it, because of the nature of the of people coming to me and saying, you know, you're gay and you're fun, and we want, we want, we want to say how, you know, it's our corporate sexual responsibility. We want to show how in, in inclusive we are. In combined with that, which I'm happy to do, you know, I enjoy doing things which are really over the top and fun because there's a, you know, a very performative side to my personality, which is very gay and very queer. Um, you know, which again put people off at university, but because uh, I would, <laughs> I would basically perform at my juries. Um, but it also means that the budget being very low, the type of materials are not the ones I would like to work with necessarily. Put it that way, they are um, paint, vinyl, um, things which are garish, um, which the ornamentation is always applied, um, and they have an effect which is very, very bright and artificial. Um, and so this kind of combination of the type of commission together with the budget and what can happen there um, means that they, they, are, they are not representative of the kind of work that I would like to do in the city. So the kind of work that I would like to do is using um, really nice materials crafted well with amazing fabricators, which have inherent color which will last over hundreds of years. I mean, nothing lasts for hundred years, but will last for a long time, and become embedded within the urban grain of the city. And it is quite incredible. Incredible, like you know, if you look at the Victorian buildings, something that in a computer render would look absolutely bananas, and people would say, like, no, we're not going to build that. In reality, when you build it with nice materials, terracotta, some of it glazed, uh, some of it encaustic, um, some of it with just different colored clays. Um, large areas which are actually much calmer with just slight texture changes. I, I don't know, I'm thinking now of St. Pancras Station. Um, they, they're beautiful and they work really, really well. Uh, and they last wonderfully and people respond to them really well. Um, but they require commitment. They require um, sort of understanding from both the clients, and the developers and the architects. And it basically never happens now. But that's the kind of work that I would dream. I, I, I never, I will never be able to do it. But that's the kind of work that I would love to do, and not not necessarily as the architect, because but I would love to work with architects to do that kind of thing. And and so no, I think um, I honestly think that people would probably not even notice my work if it was actually built. You know, they'd maybe walk past it a few times and then then look up and be like, oh, that's really nice. But it wouldn't be sort of screaming loud and totally over the top. Uh, in your face uh, at all. In, 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 in fact, I get very, very excited about the ideas of just doing spandrels. So, you know, just spandrel panels on a, on a curtain wall, just, you know, with, with subtle ornamental effects in them, just, just layering 
interest and uh, kind of meaning and cultural expression, however subtly or however loudly, but like into the permanent fabric of the city rather than, you know, I guess I'm stuck in the sort of pride float situation, which is where, yay, being queer is great as long as you only do it one day a year on a float. Um, you know, and not really being get, given, not really getting the opportunity to go a bit beyond that. I mean, I'm doing a, I'm doing a cladding for the ground level of a skyscraper at the moment in Croydon, which is very, very exciting. I mentioned it earlier, and that's, uh, you know, that that's permanent. I mean, that, that's a sort of built to be, to be lasting uh, uh, porcelain uh, ornament, and that's, you know, terribly, terribly thrilling because it's exactly the kind of thing I want to be doing all the time. <laughs> yeah, well, you might end up being. Uh, the similar doing the similar thing to the tiles that were on the Victorian tube stations that everyone still loves now, and I love to just run my hand along them. When you go outside one of the stations, you yeah, get yeah. this beautiful green tile work with like cast tiles, and you just oh, you have to get the red stunning. ones <laughs> <laughs> and the red okay. and the red exteriors. No, I mean I love the uh, my dream. I mean I, I used to say my dream is two things. Like one is to clad a skyscraper. <laughs> basically, it's basically the Louis Sullivan thing, right? My dream yeah, is yeah. To, like do a Louis, Louis Sullivan. Uh, not looking anything like that, but sort of just that that spirit. And then my other, my joint dream is to do a tube station, because my my favourite uh, piece of art, it's a, a piece of art that had a massive massive influence on me growing up, was the Tottenham Court Road tube station by Eduardo Palazzi. And yeah, which has been which has been ruined now. I mean, most of it's still intact, but like you know, the escalators, the sort of the the six grand uh, triumphal arches, um, and the sort of the tight intensity of that station where you were always kind of pressed close to these exquisite exquisite mosaics, um, and that that you know that, but also frankly, the London Underground hugely influenced me with all of its tiles, um, but also the more modern ones from the the nineteen seventies onwards, even. But yes, absolutely, the Victorian ones, and and I always talk about London's. I, I mean, you know, London, Chicago, New York; these are great cities of ceramic architecture in the nineteenth century, and 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 Britain uh, also in the in the early twentieth, with Royal Dalton being one of the world's greatest manufacturers of that. You know, down on the South Bank, actually, with with their one of their buildings surviving, where you can see kind of uh, all of the uh, the kind of different types of terracotta tiles that they they put onto that building to show their potential clients what they could offer it's very nice but yeah i remember going down to buenos aires and there's an amazing there's an amazing ceramic building there called the um uh the palacio de, de, de agua corrientes i think the, the the palace of running water it's a giant pumping station but it's built really like it, i mean it looks like a natural history museum it's so because our buenos aires was so rich back then and it's uh, it's all just like coruscating polychromatic uh, terracotta um, uh, tiles and bricks and uh, the whole thing was shipped down from the UK uh, with numbers <laughs> kind of assembled <laughs> like a jigsaw and there's a lot of buildings around the world like that which should have come from Britain from our ceramic factories mm. yeah well on the um, on the sort of style question a lot of your work is very sort of postmodernist influenced uh, at first appearance can you sort of talk about what your relationship and on is with postmodernism, what your thoughts on it are, and how how you're doing it to a one to a lesser or greater degree, and whether or not that's the way you think that's the way forward, or whether there's other ways that aren't sort of the postmodernist route? No, there's no one way forward. <laughs> my, I spent my entire life trying to argue that we don't all have to do the same thing in architecture. There's this kind of monomaniacal idea that everyone has to follow one particular idea, which is just so bananas. Um, but uh, postmodernism, no. So um, I was always uh, very rudely and very dismissively referred to from university onwards that everything that I did as postmodern, and I didn't know what, I didn't know what POMO was. Uh, I basically grew up in an, you know, an immigrant family uh, of people who loved aesthetics and what, what's called kitsch stuff, you know, um, uh, ornament and decoration. Um, and then I, you know, was, I was kicked out of school and, and um, you know, was kind of saved by the queer scene in London and was very much embedded in this kind of politically very motivated queer scene in the late 90s in London that was also uh, very proud and was constantly expressing itself very forcefully and vigorously through uh, all kinds of visual culture from 
uh, graphics to um, uh, nightclub and bar designs uh, through protest uh, protest movement designs. And I was, you know, very much embedded in that. And so I had just grown to understand, you know, visual expression as being a really potent and powerful thing uh, to affirm one's one's identity if it's uh, in any way uh, not you know part of the majority and in, in some way struggles a little bit to to exist um, and uh, you know aesthetics and, and sort of very forceful colorful ornate expressions were, were simply what I did and I'd been trained to do and I was very proud of and then I went to architecture school and suddenly I was being sneered at and called perma I was like what's that <laughs> I didn't know what that was um, and I think there is a there is a sort of fundamental thing where in in any parts of society if you do something that is not done within that particular group they will refer to you as very often in a derogatory way as the thing that is closest to that that they don't like and postmodernism used color postmodernism had some ornament not really um because they could never quite bring themselves to actually use it properly they did sort of shitty ornament um sort of baby baby sort of ornament um and and so automatically people would just be like oh perma so anything with color was perma anything with ornament was perma it's classical column perma because it was a, it was the only period i guess since the 19 since the early 20th century when some of these things were allowed to be explored within architecture within these sort of male academic western architecture you know they were a little bit naughty for that period and so that's the only reference that they had but actually i was always interested in things that looking back are very clearly queer themes um or simply existing in the entire world of ornament and decoration and expression which is everything and not restricting myself to this tiny fucking sad world of narrow horizons with a, a set of, I don't know, 30 canonical architects. Um, and that was just seen as POMO. So I kind of went through, um, and it's funny because I was, and, you know, I was learning all this stuff through ceramics about all kinds of different movements from all sorts of different periods of history. And then I, I was very, very proud and, and forcefully refusing to reject sort of the queer identity that I had, uh, which, which actually is mixed up with POMO in the sense that POMO, academic POMO architects nicked so much from the queer scene, just lifted it right out. And I refused to give that up and sort of occasionally people would be like, oh, it's said Memphis, because of course that's the, you know, you know, Sotsas, it's another sort of male Western guy who was tied to the academy who, oh yeah, he did some of that stuff. Um, but I was, luckily uh, discovering for myself histories and backgrounds that gave me the confidence to go through university basically questioning all of the people who were telling me what I was doing was oh you're what are you making an ironic joke are you uh, referencing things you know because they were just you know that's where POMO is it's all about ironic referencing which is not what I was doing um, but I was looking at you know radical architecture and design from the 1980s and 1970s in New York from the queer scene and all the artists from around there were really inspiring me, you know, uh, Baroque Between the Boards is a book that came out much later, but the sort of the radical scene of the 1920s onwards in the UK is the gay and lesbian scene where interiors and sort of uh, kind of over the top expressions of classicism and Baroque art and architecture were really integral to their queer identities and going all the way back and discovering that the world's first art historian was basically theorizing the beauty of ancient architecture and design and its whiteness because he loved naked boys and statue form. And this is basically soliloquizing uh, a justification for his homoeroticism uh, um, uh, through uh, a description of why classicism was something that should be rediscovered and all these sort of forgotten histories which underpin all of this stuff which other people consider so so serious um, and uh, in, in architecture school, they kept saying POMO, POMO, POMO. And I was looking at all of these things and just being ignored. I mean, they're, they're there in my work. Um, and eventually I just got so frustrated because I then went out from university into the sort of wider world. And it was the same thing, you know, like, it's a POMO, POMO, POMO. Um, and I ended up doing what I thought would just sort of lay this to rest, but actually, because I try and whenever I'm sort of involved in something I try and take it seriously or wherever I'm 
whenever I'm using something in my methodology and my approach, I try and take it sort of relatively seriously. And so I was like, okay, I'll do a book on postmodernism with Terry Farrell, uh, where he will talk about historically and his personal experiences of that period. And I'll sort of lay out a sort of historical view of it from a sort of, I guess, a millennial and sort of a geriatric millennial uh, and see it as a sort of dispassionate, see it in a dispassionate sort of objective manner. And then sort of just give a sort of, an angle as to as to my relationship to it or again maybe to the millennial relationship to it because there was a, by this point which was sort of 2015 there was just a lot of finger waving of these bloody millennials on instagram they just all it is about image and therefore postmodernism is colorful so it's perfect for just the image for this instagram general you know it's always now there's things about generation z probably with tiktok um you know sort of moral panics of older generations um you know, and uh, articles saying, you know, all these millennials reusing postmodern forms, but without the understanding of what postmodernism really was for us. Um, and but all that book did was make actually made everything worse because people, I mean, people read it and the people who read it sort of found it interesting, but people just saw the title revisiting postmodernism and they they didn't read it and they just presumed that I was, some people, but very vocal people presumed that I was advocating. <laughs> For, for a revival and I kept getting people asking me they're like so tell me about this book you've written reviving postmodernism I'm like no it's not called that um so that was a mistake so then my name sort of got attached to the very thing I was I was trying to situate in a more contextualized way within my work um and so it's kind of been slightly a Voldemort situation where it's just following me around <laughs> like this evil uncle <laughs> and then I moved into the you know, I moved into the design world because architecture uh well yeah, I wasn't I wasn't able to do anything in architecture really um and I moved into the design world and then it switched it switched swap swapped it switched from being pomo 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 you know angry 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 to being Memphis 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 and <laughs> It's kind of the same thing and now everyone's like so you're really influenced by, if it's a, a design journalist they're like so i can tell that you're very influenced by memphis <laughs> it's, and it's like oh dear i'm just gonna i'm just gonna and normally i just sort of go with the flow because i don't really mind i mean right is people call you what they call you and it's 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 fine and occasionally you meet someone who would is happy to have a broader conversation about other references <laughs> so i guess to summarize postmodernism yes was something that i looked at but i look at way more than that and uh and i made the mistake of writing a book on it <laughs> yeah do you think is that have you sort of thought of your own way of defining your own work in a in, in almost in like an ism kind of way i know it's impossible to sort of set isms and it's probably irresponsible to do so as well but it's i find it sort of interesting to think about in 100 or 200 years time what will be this era what will this era be labeled in terms of the architectural history well they labeled Brickophilia. <laughs> was it New London architecture, isn't it? Oh, sorry, New London vernacular. The sort yeah. of con concrete with clad brick. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's clearly that's clearly the. I mean, it's everywhere. <laughs> it's, I, I don't. Yeah, I think it's definitely the the most dominant form of architecture that we've we've seen um, probably since the kind of neo vernacular brick of the eighties uh, suburban developments or early nineties, late eighties early 90s developments everywhere um in terms of myself no so i mean noism um i'm you know i'm a i like making things and I, I i like playing and i like having fun and i like experimenting i don't so put it this way i was teaching i found teaching architecture really hard because there's a there seems to be an inbuilt desire um for a kind of ma maestro setup where the tutor has all the answers and the tutor presents a world view to the students which they then can sort of implement effectively in ism right um and and i just can't and i never and i never wanted to and i found that i found that very uncomfortable because i'm like i i'm learning i mean my life is learning it's fun i experimenting and exploring and learning i don't have the answer i don't have the answers for anything i have lots and lots of sorry i have loads of answers and i can talk till the cows come home as you can see but i don't i don't ever conceive of any of them as being universal at all and they're all subject to change 
Um, and so I can never, I could never give any of the students a definitive answer for anything. I sort of, I sort of give them a talk and then say, yeah, but then there's also like this way of seeing things and that way of seeing things. Um, and I would, I never showed them my drawings. Like I don't want, I didn't ever want them to just reproduce my works. What the hell? I mean, <laughs> you know, every, every architect's journey should have quite a lot of uh, introspection, reflection and exploration within it. So even if they would want to do something like my work, I would tend to refer them to my references or my source material that it inspired me for the thing that they were that they were interested in. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that became a little bit too difficult because with the requirements of architectural education laid down by the Reba, they have to produce so much in such a short space of time that there actually isn't that much space for all of that exploration. <laughs> and they kind of just want you to it's like feed me, uh, tell me what drawings to do. Um, and, and so, no, I would, you know, for me, the moment, at least in the way I think of it, the moment that you create, the, the moment that you categorize, conceptualize, an approach or a methodology and turn it into a formula um you kill it um and that's and that seems to, that seems to be the want of architectural academia it is labeling things and naming things that tend to exist from outside owning them by categorizing them and doing a publication and turning them into a break a sort of comprehensible and, and workable formula i mean for instance if we take venturi scott brown for instance, with uh, with learning from Las Vegas, it's a good example, the most famous example. You that you uh, well, the people who are sort of analysing and taking methodological uh, 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 approaches from existing conditions, um, you know that they looked at Main Street and Las Vegas, and while never really committing, so they say it's kind of all right. You know, they're sort of like uh, anthropological safari travelers going into the sort of wilderness of where, where normal people live. What is a weird thing that normal people do? Um, and then they, they analyze it, they conceptualize it, they break it down into ducks and sheds, um, you know, signs and whatever, tie it in with their, with their literary theory, uh, and lit, lit, well, their forms of literary analysis, and they sort of apply that to the city, and then publish a book, and, and they've taken ownership over an entire culture of sort of bottom-up architecture and design, um, commercial design that that you know was treat totally democratic and existing in new ways that was constantly evolving. But they froze it and they turned it into a formula, which became that type of postmodernism. You know, very formulaic, flat thing. It's, it's all about you know they theorize that it's about the flatness of the facade and the sign. And of course, nobody really in real life follows those rules because they're not rules. But architects seem to need rules. And those who set the rules become very famous and they get tenure and they get they become professors. Um, but yeah, the joy of creativity for me is the opposite of that. It's not laying things down. And I get angry and also a little bit, you know, with postmodernism, you see a lot of radical queer design that was basically stolen by East Coast academics, turned into formulas um, and rolled out across the world totally ignoring their origins and this happens quite quite a lot with different different approaches you know architects pilfer um and then they they formulize um and take ownership of um so no i prefer to live in that kind of queer space of just being and and fucking around if i'm allowed to say that and playing and and constantly breaking rules at the moment that they're set up and not pretending to take ownership over things even if I can explain them in that in that way, at any given moment in time, perhaps I am able to conceptualize and break down into a set of formulas and categories and approach. But then hopefully in, in a year, that approach will have radically changed. And the book Queer Spaces that, that I've edited with Josh that's coming out now. <laughs> the launch is like the launch is like late uh, next month, but the books are starting to ship now, I think, in the next week. You know, that that's a sort of a manifesto really of an opposite approach, at least for us, to that Venturi sort of academic approach of owning of owning things. We are, it's 50 different contributors, 100 different spaces. Um, the we don't categorize things. We don't aim to define what queer space is. We don't aim to show categories and explain them and say how they're to design them and uh, what are the formal characteristics of each of them. There are, and they're inherent and they're present and the kind of 
you know, behind the scenes with the editing and the creating, they're kind of they're laid out there, but we don't define them. Especially with the fact that in 10 years that book would contain very different things. Um, again, very long answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, for, to round off then, how how do you think you win the argument in the mainstream? How do you get the big practices who are doing all the new London vernacular stuff, who are doing all the major developments? to be won over by your arguments in favor of ornament of color of more interesting more diverse architecture rather than what it is that they're currently doing yeah i mean color is not necessary it's just i think the moment that you do different types of ornament you end up with different inherent color i, I just i'm not i'm not necessarily advocating for polychromy but i am advocating for a sort of greater diversity in terms of visual effect and ornamentation um I look. I don't know. I'm. I'm trying my best. So I. I give talks to practices, you know. And it, what, I, there's a reason I left the art world and I moved into architecture at the very, very beginning of, of my education because architects fundamentally are actually some of the best in the creative field at calmly thinking and listening, um, and they're actually very rational, reasonable, and passionate people. Um, and there are certain, certain, I guess, contexts which are not conducive to good discussion. And frankly, academic contexts are very confrontational and quite, you know, it's all about ideologies. Um, social media, not very helpful. Uh, publication sometimes, but actually I find that meeting people like doing, I don't know, Zoom CPDs or meeting people in person, it's always really wonderful because actually fundamentally, you know, they don't want to do, they don't, they want to do good things. <laughs> they want to do nice buildings, they all care. Um, and everyone's always looking for the potential to do new things within their work. So I'm, I remain pretty hopeful because I've had lots of great conversations with very big practices um, doing this. You know, a lot of them are doing this kind of new, new vernacular work because they're large practices that do, I mean, fundamentally high quality projects that just change style depending on sort of the era and what's necessary to get things through planning and what clients like. Um, and, you know, I have this this project, this one this one building project this this one architectural ornamentation project which is with hta architecture you know they're a great large housing uh, practice with a really illustrious history um and you know i talked to i've tried i've talked several times to hawkins brown um and you know i absolutely adore to work with them because they're just a bunch of great people um and similarly with ahmm um but yeah all i can do is keep talking um and keeping an eye out for opportunity explaining from my position why i think these things will be really good not only from the perspective of city dwellers and the people who live in the buildings but i think there is an argument to be made also and i had to make this argument on the croydon project for the investors that there is a value question there as well and i do i do think that that actually this it, it can be part of a package that does increase the value of the project um but that's not normally something you know that i talk about in these type of podcasts because obviously they're more geared towards theory <laughs> <laughs> well the the practicalities are, are essential in my in my opinion um finally to round off what advice would you give to stu current students whether undergraduate or postgraduate who are stuck in the system effectively and have to pass their exams and have to do x y and z to do to explore in the way that you think they should explore or or manage to push the boundaries while still finding sort of towing that line of, of academia yeah i mean i don't there's no need to push boundaries i mean it's, it's i think fu fundamentally for me it's about the journey not just me i mean it's this is for all of my friends who are the same age who, who studied architecture the main journey is about finding what you're good at and what you like doing. I think in architecture school, sometimes it's very easy to lose sight of the fact that the profession is very, very big. So maybe not the profession of just like people who have their Reba part, their Reba part three um, ARB registered, but the building industry is vast. Um, even offices, not everyone are architects. There's a lot of other skill sets within there of people who work with them. Um, 
you know, from people working on the conceptual level, working on competitions, to people who really enjoy project management, to people who like detailing facades, to people who work, you know, I have a friend who, who just does cause, um, which is an extremely important and very complex part of uh, large, uh, large office schemes. Um, you know, there's, in university, it's quite easy to be fed an idea that you have to be this one kind of architect. And again, that changes with fashion. You know, when I was at school, it was like, you had to be Zaha. Um, it was like, you had to be Ram Kulhas. Um, obviously things have changed. I think now it's like, you have to save, you have to save the seals in Canada through your building. <clears throat> or, you know, some, but, but whatever, whatever it is, good or bad, doesn't matter. It's the fact that there tends to be one focus. And actually 95, 98% of you are not going to be able to be that person. Not because maybe you can't, but you probably fucking hate it. <laughs> like you'd hate the role that's required to be a politician, uh, an eco ecological warrior, a developer. I don't know all the things that come, that come that combined together now to be the sort of ideal figure. And actually the journey should be that you uh, pay attention to what you actually enjoy, forgetting about what your peers value, because maybe you're really just like doing technical detailing and that's fucking great. Maybe you love project management. That's great. Maybe you, you're like me and you're what everyone used to call doing the fluffy stuff. Okay. And you like just doing, um, you know, the theoretical ideas and the ornament. You know, I was laughed out of the room always. It was very, you know, it was frankly quite humiliating, but not just me. I'm sure there's people who more technical side who felt humiliated as well because their work was looked down on. It's okay you'll probably earn more money than the people who are celebrated anyway because <laughs> your skills will be valued. But yeah, so it's just a matter of, I, I would say, just try and focus or pay attention to yourself and what you're actually enjoying, what you're actually good at. And the same thing when you leave. Um, if you're not enjoying the work that you're doing in an office, move. I mean, there's, there's a massive shortage, skills shortage anyway, so you always move up. You'll get a pay bump every time. And try a few different roles in different offices. Yeah, well, thank you very much for all of that. That's a very uh interesting advice definitely and advice i almost entirely agree with can i also say that everyone should buy more colorful shirts and i have a sh shirt collection very similar to what you're wearing i know right now. i remember you yeah, had an amazing yeah. shirt when i met you oh well, i was I just staring I, I, at your shirt <laughs> yeah i have that one was tame i have a a gold and black shirt which is extreme even for me and i haven't worn it out in public very yet. gucci we i watched i watched the house of gucci last night so it's very that would have been very appropriate yeah <laughs> i do love movie. some of the gucci stuff it is really uh really interesting i am i am very more versace but yeah <laughs> well i find the gucci stuff to be a bit too baroque for me a bit too they're too much neoclassical what, versace? Uh, no the gucci stuff oh okay yeah um, Italian. <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah again I've, anyway fashion is fascinating and I've, i love it this is and, this is off yeah. of instagram 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 <laughs> showed me an advert and i was like wow that's really me instagram well done and they were really affordable i bought like loads <laughs> <laughs> well i get all my colorful ones from Hawes and curtis because they do a great selection of um of super colorful casual shirts although they all have really high collars which is kind of uncomfortable sometimes but yeah we should we should we should start doing we should do an architect's fashion we should when well, uh, we're not should wearing do black. an architect's fashion roundtable yeah yeah well it's it i can't stand the sort of the pure the pure black as, as someone who absolutely loves black i still can't stand yeah. the idea of like the pure black architect with just nothing else on and like a polo neck and i can imagine it's like i love i mean white is just i'm i white they, i love that color so much and it's just so sad to see it just used everywhere because you just totally ruin white <laughs> yeah. when it becomes when it just when it takes over everything yeah i completely agree so i hear you anyway right well thank you very much adam uh it's been lovely to talk to you and i wish you Likewise. all the best and do let me know when your uh cladding project is completed and we can have a little chat about it and maybe you can give us give us a tour around. yeah so it's going to be the benchmark is going up uh in june um and then 2023 uh it'll be complete excellent well, I very much look forward to it, and I hope. Oh, we and it's have... using. You said you like the the tiles in the in the underground. It's actually working with the company in Stoke that made all the, that makes all of the underground tiles. Fantastic! I might start have to having to experiment with them a bit myself as well, hopefully. But yes, yes, more more Louis Sullivan type buildings, everyone. We think. 
yeah we we like sullivan and we like we like all the ornamented stuff so do more of it <laughs> all right well thank you very much adam and uh we will see you again soon bye